to go. So um, just to go over like very quickly the point of this class. Um, this is an attempt to do Jewish theology in a little bit less of an argumentative way. Um, a lot of times, I mean, there is like a lot of discussion about Jewish theology out there. Like, don't get me wrong. There's, Jews like talking about God. Um, but what there is not is... Um, just descriptions of God that are put out for the purpose of helping achieve better relationships with God. Um, there's lots of there's lots of kinds of relationships with God. There's many different ways in which God is described. Um, and the point of this class is to highlight just a few of the kind of threads throughout Jewish history um, where particular God is described in particular ways in order to help us think about relationships. Um, and so. Part of what that means is we're going to be looking at some of these texts in a slightly different way uh, than you might have looked at them before, if you've looked at these texts before. Um, and part of what it means um, is that we're going to try as much as possible not to get into arguments about, like, does this text make sense? Or does this text, um, is it orthodox? In, not in, in lowercase orthodox. Um, I think spe especially today we're going to be looking at a series of texts which suggest that there are more than one God um, and so the point of it is not to say um, this is right, this is wrong, but simply to say, like, this is an image which has existed in Judaism. What do we make of it? What kind of relationship with God does it describe? Um, so that is the, that is the basic story. Um, the title of today's class is God is Jewish. And I should say off the bat that that is a little bit of a misnomer. I've also called it God is a Jew. Neither one is really correct. What the point of today's class is, is to describe elements in Judaism which... Um, in which God has some kind of Jewish characteristics or has some kind of special relationship with Jews. Um, and what we're going to see is there's kind of two different ways that that shows up in Jewish history, one which is familiar to us and one which is maybe not familiar to us, um, but that they're both very important um, and they both have, I think we both know about them, but they're worth kind of like bringing to the fore. Um, so, if I say that God is Jewish, what do you think about it? Like, in what sense do you think God is Jewish, if you think that God is Jewish? Just like the God's not technologically text-based? Yeah, not text-based. I mean, it can be text-based, but um, just in terms of, like, your knowledge of uh, Torah or your experience from life, like in what sense is um, the God that has been described to you in Judaism a God who is Jewish or has special affinity for Jews? So I actually really liked this um, particular title in terms of like the whole course being organized as God is and then when God is Jewish because I thought it was really it was really provocative because I think one of the biggest problems I have with God is the idea that, that it is a Jewish God and that God has a special relationship with the Jewish people through the covenant. And, um, you know, I think that the idea of the Jews being God's chosen people is in a lot of texts. And um, I think that, you know, especially as kind of like modern modernists, we like to think of God as being much more multifaceted and all. And I mean, as like a monotheistic deity, obviously there's no other God. So like, if God exists, and other people worship God, they're worshiping the same God. But the idea that God has this special relationship with the Jewish people has always, for me, been like a particularly problematic aspect of, of Judaism. Great. So, so you're describing something which we're going to get to a little bit later, which is this, the, this strange idea that it's everybody's God, but it's a God who's particularly interested in Jews. Uh, and what happens to Jews in Torah, um, all of that. Um, and you also mentioned um, notions of covenant, that there is some kind of special contract between God and the Jews. Um, so, right, so these are part of what it means like to think about God as being Jewish. Are there other ways of thinking about it? My thought is uh, that because God, like so many of the other concepts in our lives, is, is for us how we perceive it, like, what God literally is, is dependent on the way that I conceive of God. 
Like that's like the, 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 there's not an like, objective like entity called God that exists, but it's like my perception of God is what becomes God for me. And because Judaism has a distinct way of thinking about God, therefore God for Jews is Jewish. But that doesn't also that doesn't preclude God being Christian, right? Like because if, like if you're a Christian and you think of God in a specific way that is like in Christian terms, like then for you God is Christian, right? So you're describing a God who is um, maybe let, let's call it one God, but it kind of doesn't matter for for these purposes. Some some kind of God or gods um, who appear differently based on the way that you understand or you have been taught to understand. Right. Yeah. There's a way, I don't know, I think this is, like, if you take this literally, kind of like, the, you know, what we were saying about the, about Jojenness, obviously a familiar construct, but, I mean, that, I, I feel like that's almost incompatible with, like, the idea that God is Jewish, because if God is choosing the Jewish people, then God, you know, that seems very weird to say also that God is is Jewish. It's like a, it, it, it just seems like a, a circular concept. In some yeah. Way. So that particular construction, like I don't want to, I don't want us to get too hung up yeah. on that because it's, um, it's a, I wanted to give a snappy title. Yeah, so right, God is right. something. Is the idea? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it's maybe it does more harm than good. But, well, but um, is it? I mean, are you? Is there something? Is, is there some content other than chosenness to what we're going to be talking about? So I think we describe one thing already, which is covenant, which I think is different than chosenness. Um, describe like a, a people which God cares about and people which God has expectations of um, are maybe a little bit different. Um, but I think that um, the way you were describing God before also um, suggests that there can be a God who is Jewish or is perceived as Jewish without that precluding other perceptions of God. Um, so there is two already, but there might be more. Did you have a thought already? Um, okay. Other thoughts before we go on? I think we've already highlighted, actually, um, I think one of the um, important um, contrasts that we're going to see today, which is, on the one hand, like this notion of a universal God, and on the other hand, the notion that uh, where God or gods are perceived in light of the people um, who are interested in them. Um, and so we're going to start with that second one. Um, the Torah... Um, the Hebrew Bible is a document which is created, um, I don't know exactly when, but uh, I'm, not, I'm not a biblical scholar, but it was created over um, several centuries, according to scholarship. Um, one of the things that Bible scholars have known for quite a while is that the way that God is understood towards the beginning of that relation, towards the beginning of um, um, the Bible, meaning the earlier texts, not Bereshit, um, is a god which does not preclude other gods. Um, and so you can see this pretty clearly if you're looking for it. And I think like most of us, um, if you went to like some kind of Jewish day school, you probably weren't taught that there are other gods. Um, but if you look on page two, um, <clears throat> this is a line from um, Azyashir, which is one of the um, uh, songs that you say during uh, morning services every day. Who is uh, who among the gods is like you? Hmm. Who is like you, holy and glory, uh, glorious and holiness, awesome and praises, performing wonders? Which, if you kind of like look at it for a second, it indicates that there's some other gods to which God is being compared. Now, um, is it, mm-hmm. first of all, did anybody like know this before? Um, this is like I assume not the way that you were taught this in school. Um, what kind of relationship does this suggest? Meaning, like, the person who is saying this. Um, and I should also say, Az Yashir is one of the oldest parts of the Bible. Um, it's understood to be probably older than the rest of Exodus. Um, and that it's possible Exodus itself was actually constructed around Az Yashir um, to kind of fill out this story that this poem tells. Um, but what is what kind of relationship is being described here? What relationship exists between the person who is uttering this line um, and the God that is described there? Was chosen us the other way? What do you mean? Like, like choosing among among all the gods, you know, choosing that uh, that you know you're the best. Great. Yeah. So, so the God who has this four-letter name, this is you're the best God, and why is God the best here? 
Um, it's not in this sentence, but elsewhere in the... Uh, performing miracles, great. wonders, you know. Great, so yeah. God does, def- does stuff for you. Yeah. Um, and God, in this particular case, has defeated uh, the, the Egyptians for you. Um, so God is clearly the best. And you can see, like, there's a kind of... This, there's a kind of transparency to this kind of relationship um, in that God does things for people, uh, and that turns into uh, saying um, superior, that God is superior. Yeah. Um, you see this as well in another one of, um, uh, another poem in the Bible, also uh, an old part of the Torah from the book of Judges. Um, this is part of Shirat Devorah, the song that Devorah sings, also after a victory against um, enemies of the Jews. Then sing Deborah and Barak, the son of Ebinoam, on that day, saying, When men let grow their hair in Israel, when the people offer themselves willingly, bless the Lord. Hear, O kings, give ear to, O princes, I will sing to the Lord. I will sing praise to the Lord, the God of Israel. Right? The Lord, the God of Israel. Um, that it's not everyone's God, it's just Israel's God. And so this is kind of like, in terms of thinking about God as Jewish, um, this is, uh, you know, uh, a God who is Jewish, or is a God who has Jewish qualities, because he's only involved with the Jews. His, his sole mission is for the Jews, um, and there might be other gods out there who are understood in other ways, but uh, not the God of Israel. Um, you see this um, showing up in elsewhere in um, in uh, in the Bible in descriptions of God as being not just one God among many, but also like as a God who is um, interested in the Jews not having any other gods. And this is another common trope you have in the Bible, that Jews are not supposed to have other gods. They're only supposed to have this one God. Um, so you have in Exodus 34, um, if you look in verse 14, there's the descriptions of um, what will happen when the Jews enter Israel, that God is, um, the God of the Jews is kind of taking out the other nations that are there so that the Jews can live there. Um, that they're supposed to cut down the Asherim, these other, um, these uh, uh, um, ritual objects that are uh, created for other for other gods. Um, and verse 14 says, For thou shalt bow down to no other god, the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous god. Um, that there's a kind of exclusivity here. So, so what kind of relationship is this, and why is God so jealous? Uh, why can you not have other gods? according to this model? Or why does God care that you don't have other gods? Well, he, he cares because he's jealous, too. He's having an emotional reaction. Uh, oh, sorry. So it's just like, that is the character of this God. That God, is, God is jealous about that. Um... I mean, you're not going to get the sacrifices, right? It seems like the sort of the next the next sentence. Uh, it's like there's kind of a, there's something there's something that God God wants from you, and if you you're giving that to the, the other God, then you know the the God of Israel is not getting those things, right? Um, it seems not like from the next couple of phrases. It seems like not intrinsic. It's like in terms of the practical manifestations of, of what that will. If you follow other gods, like it seems like problems of like national continuity are are like a main concern, right? So it's so it's not just about the rituals in themselves, and it's not like um, there's something just problematic about sacrificing the other gods, but that it will involve some kind of um, dilution of yeah. Jewish presence um, in the land, mm-hmm. um, and so there is this close connection then between kind of political power. Um, and divine power, um, and that um, God, on the one hand, is interested in uh, being the only God in the land, and at the same time um, is interested in the Jews not being involved in the uh, the other nations that were there previously. Um, so you have this kind of like uh, also close relationship between um, sovereignty um, and this notion of God. What you don't see here, I don't think, is the notion of God, this is a God for every one of the Jews. Like, if the Jews have a problem, like, if any particular Jew has a problem, like, they go to this, they, they go to this God for help. Like, I mean, I assume that's part of this, but it's not emphasized here. What's emphasized here is, like, this is a God who is a God for the nation. Um, 
Um, so there's an emphasis on the national component of this. Um, now, where does this God come from, and how is he involved with the Jews? Um, well, one of the things that you see um, in God describing himself, even earlier on in the Torah, is um, God as being related to particular individuals um, and particular families. So um, you have in, uh, in Yaakov, uh, Jacob has a dream uh, with a ladder. Behold, the Lord was standing upon him, or it, um, and he said, I am the Lord your God, I am the Lord the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land upon which you are lying, I shall give it to you and to your offspring. So why should Jacob care about this God? The God of your forefathers. Right, it's like it's an inherited relationship. Um, and in fact, it's inherited quite a bit um, further down the line um, in Shemot, uh, when God reveals himself to Moshe at the burning bush, God, God says, and he said, I'm the Lord, I'm the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So this is something which kind of continues um, even before there is kind of a notion of like a Jewish people as such. You have God already being involved. Um, now, why would it be important that, you know, there be a God who is consistent among an entire community? Like, why not have, I mean, even if you are understanding a world in which there are multiple gods, you can understand that there are gods for, you know, a couple people here, a couple people there, like, you know, the Smith family has their God. Um, why, does, why do you think it, uh, that God is interested in these kind of larger groups of people, in these communities um, that turn into nations? Like, what, what, what does that suggest about the relationship um, that these texts uh, are describing with God? Um, well, I think it's an interesting, it's, a, it's not quite like a paradox, but the idea that, like, God is interested in communities that turns into nations, but yet God is... He's not kind of evangelical because he's excluding all of these other peoples in the earlier passages. So it's like he's restricting himself to the Jews. So even though like he's starting with it, like individuals and kind of multiplying into enlarging himself into communities and into the Jewish people as a nation, he's not at least at this point in Judeo-Christian history, you know, trying to conquer um, all the others. Right, so there's a, a clearly defined territory in which um, the Jewish God is involved with the Jewish people. Um, and within that territory, it's important that that be exclusively Jewish. Um, maybe you can have, like, you know, visitors, you can have, like, you can have the Gerber Toshav who come in, uh, but it's, in general, an area that is meant specifically for Jews. But it's also not saying, like, and none, nobody else matters, like, um, it's just saying for this limited area, for this limited territory, um, only the Jews are here. You will see later on, we're about to see, um, that there are descriptions where God says the Jews just matter more, or like they're just they're more important um, than other gods if they exist, um, and and other peoples. There is like some kind of hierarchy um, that is present. But so going back, so one of the things I want to highlight about this is that there is a relationship with the Jewish God or with this particular God. Um, but it's not just a relationship with, like, individual, individual. Um, there's some kind of continuity to it. Um, and that it gets inherited, it gets passed down from one individual to a larger community. Um, and when God introduces himself, that's the way, uh, that's kind of like the authority that God carries into that relationship, saying, like, why do you listen to me? Because I'm the one to take you out of Egypt. And um, in the very next, uh, sorry, not the very next verse, but in source number seven, you see, like, in the Ten Commandments, like, how does God describe himself when he's introducing himself to everybody? He says, I am the Lord your God who took you out of the land of Egypt from bondage. You don't have other gods before me. Why not? Because I'm the one who took you out of Egypt. I'm the one who did this for you. Um, and so one of the things you're seeing here already um, in this model of, of, a, of a Jewish God is that um, it's not a God which just exists for one lifetime. It's a God which has some kind of history, and that history is important to the relationship. Um, it's maintained over long periods of time. Um, longer, than the lifetime of, longer than the lifetime of an individual, certainly. Um, and it's that history uh, which kind of makes the relationship important. Um, right. Questions so far? Questions about this material? Does this sound... Um, does this kind of relationship with God sound very different from ones that you have in your lives? 
and if so, how? I guess this is more of different from, like, I, from very young age, I was always taught, you know, Judaism is monotheistic, and this is just, like, a, was like an interesting way of looking at it where, like, I guess whenever I had seen these passages before, I always, I never thought about it in terms of, like, God trying to prove, you know, himself from other gods of just kind of, like, this was just, like, the language of the time and, like, not, like, he was even, like, needing to prove himself or anything. I don't know what that means. Uh, in a similar way, like, I was always taught it as, like, uh, where, where, where did we read? Uh, like, me, me, is, like, the alien were always kind of, like, uh, seen as, like, these very kind of silly and inferior practices. Like, like, yeah. it, like when, when it uses, like, the term Elim, it refers to, like, sort of, like, idol worship, which is, in like, an, in its basest form. Right. It's, like, how I was always taught it. Right, so it's kind of interpreted in advance to suggest the gods are not, the gods that are described are not really gods. They're, it's kind of, like, um, doing them a service to call them Elim, but really they're, they're exactly. nothing. They're yeah. nothing of the, of that, the Like, the, the, this, that this phrase is even kind of, like, uh, silly to even put it that way because it's, like, such an order of magnitude and difference. Right. Yeah. Um... One of the things that uh, this model suggests is, and we pointed out before, there's a parallel between uh, kind of the uh, the strength of people, the power of of um, of, of nations, of um, of sovereigns to uh, to kind of get their way, and the strength of the gods. So, like, God uh, is, is powerful because the people are powerful, or vice versa, however you want to describe it. Um, but that what this allows for is a kind of parallel between what happens on earth and what happens in heaven. So that, like, different nations warring with one another can be described as different gods um, being uh, warring with one another. Um, and so that human activity is paralleled above, but in a way that is maybe different from the way we think about, we might think about today. Um, so, in this model, what it might mean for Israel to, say, be conquered by the Romans might be that to say that the Romans have a god who's defeated the Jewish god, um, which I th- which is clearly not the way um, that we think about that, or even the Bible thinks about um, defeat later on. Um, but it suggests um, a kind of um, a parallel um, in the celestial sphere uh, to, to action on earth. But the parallel works much better if you are winning. Uh, it works much better if you are uh, if you're in a position of power. Um, if you're not in a position of power, this notion of um, of a god who is our god actually suggests a god who is like maybe maybe the answer to like Mikamocha Beliam Hashem who is like you god you can say like well there's lots of other gods because they defeated us so like that notion like that way of like being interested in god um, works not as well um, from a position of disenfranchisement um, I keep thinking of Zeus yeah <laughs> what about Zeus just like all the like the conflict of the gods and the I don't know. Yeah. The constant battles and fights and yeah. how that collected down on Earth. I mean, so where you see that, like, in, in a kind of small version is um, if you look in uh, um, in source number six, uh, there is a contract that is negotiated between Lavan and uh, and Yaakov and Jacob. Um, and in the contract, both of the parties swear to their god. But if you look carefully, they're actually swearing to different gods. If you, if you look in verse uh, 53, the God of Abraham, this is, um, this is Lavan speaking, the God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judged between us. And Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. So one is like thinking in terms of like the God who's associated with Isaac, and one is thinking in terms of the God who's associated with um, Abraham and Nahor and like the kind of larger clan. But suggesting again like that, this contract that is being negotiated between individuals is paralleled by uh, some kind of interaction between two divine entities which are related to the families. Um, the, this notion of God, and let's call this model one, just to make things easier. Um, this notion of God as being uh, related to individuals, uh, sorry, as, as being related to groups, but that there, being, there are room for more than one God, um, falls apart um, in the Bible um, especially around uh, the time when Israel starts becoming weaker, um, so that after the destruction of the first temple um, in the exile, and then in the second temple period, the second temple period being man- when um, much of what we know as the Bible is, is composed. Um, Yirmiyahu, for example, Jeremiah, 
um, is, is quintessentially one of the prophets who is moving towards a very different notion of God. So um, let's read this, and I want you to tell me how exactly this notion of God is different from model number one. Hear the word which the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. This is on page four. Thus says the Lord, learn not the way of the nations, and be not dismayed at the sign of heaven, for the nations are dismayed at them. For the customs of the people are vanity, for it is but a tree which one cuts out of the forest, the work of the hands of the workmen with the axe. They deck it with silver and with gold, they fasten it with nails and with hammers that it move not. They are like a pillar in the garden of cucumbers and speak not. They need, not be, they need to be born because they cannot go. Be not afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, neither, it is in, neither is it in them to do good. There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? For it befits you. For among all the wise men of the nations, and in all their royalty, there is none like you. But they are altogether brutish and foolish. The vanities by which they are instructed are but a stock, silver beaten into plates, which is brought from Tarshish, and gold from Ufaz. The work of the craftsmen of the hands of the goldsmith, blue and purple is their clothing. They are all the work of skillful men. But the Lord God is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At his wrath the earth trembles, and the nations are not able to abide his indignation. Thus shall you say to them, The gods that, the gods that have not made the heavens and the earth, these shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. Okay, so how is this different from the model we've seen before? Hmm. I mean, and I want to show you this now because like, this is actually probably familiar to you, like this way of describing God is a way that is not dissimilar from the way you describe God in prayer. Um, but how is it different from what we looked at before? The two things that jumped out to me, just as you were reading through it, was one that it was um, for among all the wise men of the nations, like here we're not, not being compared to other gods, but to wise men, which I think is a very big contrast to mm. the first part. Um, and then kind of similar um, in verse 10, but the Lord God is the true God. And this is kind of, Versus saying, like, there's other potential for other gods. It's now, this is the true God, and anything else is not a legit God. Right. And what, what makes God a true God? Like, how do we know from this, what proofs are being brought by this, this text that, uh, that um, the Lord God is the true God? Hashem Elohim Emet. The other gods are, like, the works of men. Right. So they can't do anything. Um, you know they aren't true gods because they have no power. And what power do you need to have, according to this text, to be the true god? Make the heavens and the earth. Yeah, so you have to make everything. If you make everything, then you are the true god, right? Uh, that way of saying it, like, the, the, that the gods that have not made the heavens and the earth, they shall perish from the earth. So the only eternal god is the god that makes everything. Um... And this suggests, um, for one of the first times in Judaism, that there's only one God then. Um, because there's a kind of unity to creation, um, because God is associated with that creation, and so therefore uh, there's a unity to God as well. Um, what about, cre where, when, and, I mean, but the start of is before this, right? So, well, I mean, who knows, right? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that's what makes it difficult. So, like, yeah. early, early, um, the fact that the text is earlier in the Torah doesn't mean that it's... Actually. Right. Yeah. So what kind of relationship does one have with this God? Like, does this text suggest what a relationship looks like? What it would be about? Like, what would it be to relate to this God? I feel like this God is not necessarily a Jewish God. Like the in the other case, the power of God was sort of directly tied to the power of the Jewish people, or how powerful the Israel was compared to other nations. And um, and here, the power of God is sort of more presented as um, as being creator of everything. Um, so it seems like the relationship with Israel is not sort of at the forefront here. Great, so I'm glad you raised that. So, so this text does not suggest in particular um, some kind of specific special relationship to, uh, to the Jewish people, at least in this, in this part of it. It suggests a kind of universal God. But in this 
in the context of this God, why is it then that the Jews are experiencing suffering? This isn't in this source. But what would this text suggest is the reason that Jews are maybe not doing so well, that their temple is destroyed, that they're being exiled from the land? Because now it can't be anymore that there's another God who's defeating the Jewish God. So given that there's one God who's created everything, why are the Jews suffering? Because of their sins. Right. So so one of the things that goes along with this, and I think this gets to what Kari was uh, mentioning at the beginning, that there's a universal God, but at the same time, this universal God has rules that um, he's laid down for the Jewish people. Um, And so in this second model of God, what you have is... One God, a God who is more powerful by far, a God who is, uh, does not allow for the existence of any other gods, um, but also a God which has rules. Um, and it's those rules which dictate now um, why nations rise or fall, and not uh, simply um, kind of competition between deities. Um, it also seems here like there's a little bit more of a sense that uh, it's not necessarily that God chooses you as a nation, but that the nation chooses God. Like that the, all the other nations are experiencing so much suffering because they've decided to worship these false gods, but I guess implicit in that is maybe that they could decide to worship uh, the true God, like the Jews have decided to do, and experience the benefits that come along with that. Great. And there's uh, a, uh, a book in uh, the Hebrew Bible that suggests that just such a thing might happen, that a foreign nation might decide one day that they will follow the one true God um, and that God will therefore um, look favorably upon them to do well. And that's the book of Jonah. You have the people of Nineveh um, who are suddenly roused to, to kind of go back from their evil ways. They do well. Crisis is averted. Um, and everything's all is all right. Um, and Joan is also like a book in which you have a character who's trying to escape from God, and who's like told like you can't escape from God because there's just one. So like, so Joan I think is like a good example of exactly how that might happen. Um, and that although God might have a particular relationship with the Jewish people, um, that you know uh, the way in which uh, people are treated is contingent on their behavior. But a weird thing about that is that, you know, I mean, part of the subtext of all this one of the, the time is that these, these nations, it's like, they're doing pretty well, you know, and yet they're, they're, they're acting in these heathen ways and, and worshipping these pieces of silver. And so you have to sort of be able to reconcile why it is that these nations can, you know, can do well. Right. Um, so, the, I mean... That gets a little bit more complicated in terms of thinking about like is the is their relation is the responsibility of the Jews the same as the responsibility of everyone else or is there some kind of special relationship that Jews have and therefore by not following it um, worse things can happen that God has lower expectations for other peoples. Um, what you do have starting in Deuteronomy Deuteronomy is a, a later text um, is. This notion uh, that there is some kind of code um, that is set down that uh, dictates how people should behave, and that that code supersedes prophets. So, like, if if you're thinking about like a text that um, is speaking about a universal God and like universal rules um, that kind of supersede the possibility of even a divine entity to um, to override, um, you have this in this text. So. Uh, Deuteronomy 13 describes the possibility that there, there can be a false prophet. And if there arise in the midst of the prophet or dreamer of dreams, and he give you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes to pass, whereof he spoke unto thee, saying, Let us go after other gods which thou hast not known, and let us serve them. Thou shalt not hearken unto the words of the prophet, or unto that dream of, dreamer of dreams. Um, for the Lord your God putteth you into proof to know whether you do love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And after the Lord you shall walk, and after him you shall fear, and his commandments shall you keep. And unto his voice shall you hearken, and him shall you serve, and unto him shall you cleave. And that prophet shall, uh, that dreamer of dreams, shall be put to death, because he has spoken perversion against the Lord your God. And who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and redeemed thee out of the house of bondage, 
to thee to draw thee aside out of the ways from which the Lord thy God commanded thee to walk in, so that you put away the evil from the midst of thee. So this is described, um, this kind of shift um, is described by one biblical scholar, Bernard Levinson, as kind of like the beginning of like the first constitution, meaning like a document uh, which governs uh, people's behavior um, that is independent of the executive to, 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 to change. So like a prophet can't just come in and say like, okay, everything's, you know, let's start over again. Let's change it all up. You can't do that anymore because you have these rules set down. Um, so this notion of false prophet is very important. One thing that's interesting to note here is you have this notion of, uh, um, the, like, God brought out of the land of Egypt here as well. So, but what's the function of that here? Why, why does God point out here that, like, he's the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of bondage? What, what functions does that serve in this text? It's, it's sort of, like, in a way that sets the stakes. Uh, it's like, this God did, did this for you. Like, obviously, you should continue to abide by what that God believes that you should do. And you wouldn't want to mess that up by, because someone else came and said something different. Because this, this incredible thing happened. This God just did this incredible thing for you. Right. And that can happen even if you have a universal God. A universal God in this text can still uh, be giving you, uh, can still be redeeming you, can still be bringing you out of Egypt. Because of those actions, even if it's not just your God, there's still allegiance that's owed. So, in, in Model 2, just as in Model 1, like, history is still important. Um, yeah. yeah, you were going to say something, Ali? No, I've, what are you um, So this kind of, like, sets out, like, the two basic models. On the one hand, you have a model of, of, um, of thinking about God in which there is a God who has some special relationship to Jews... And then there are other gods who do not. And there's as many gods as you want there to be. Um, and this is a model which, in the Bible, works well at a time when Israel is ascendant, is uh, triumphant, has territory. You then have a second model, which we're more familiar with, which is associated with disenfranchisement. Um, a god who is actually much larger um, and excludes all other gods... Um, but at the same time does so when the Jews are at the moment of extreme weakness. So there's a way to think about this model, too, as kind of being... as You can be kind of cynical about it if you wanted to. Um, you could say that uh, it's there um, because the Jews are feeling weak, and therefore they want to kind of embed within the God, the universal God, this notion of, like, there's a special covenant, there's a special relationship... Um, there's special laws just for us. Um, and what you see in the Talmud, um, let's not just, let's be not cynical for another second. Um, what you see in the Talmud is this relationship between God, uh, God's kind of centrality to the universe and care about Jews is frequently paired with God, with, with Jews as being like incredibly powerless. Um, if you look in source number 12, um, there is the statement, which you might have seen before, of Chiyabar Ami said in the name of Ula, from the day that the temple was destroyed, God has nothing in the world but the four cubits of halacha. That's like just like, the God who created the heavens and the earth cares so much about the destruction of one building that he has now restricted himself to, what of all things? Jewish practice. Um, this suggests that the fate of the Jews is incredibly important to God. Um, and it's suggesting it at a time when the temple is destroyed. Um, you also have this um, in the Yom Kippur liturgy, this poem, uh, this poem Ela Ezkara, um, which is composed uh, in Ashkenaz uh, by a guy named Yehuda. I don't think we know his last name. Um, and Ela Ezkara uh, describes the martyrdom of ten rabbis at the hands of the Roman authorities. Um, and in the middle of this text, um, there's like a pretty gruesome scene in which Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel's head is cut off. And Rabbi Shmael kind of lifts up the head and is like lamenting this, and then he himself is killed also in a gruesome manner. And in the second paragraph there on page six, Seraphim, these angels, uh, you kind of like see like meanwhile in heaven, the Seraphim in the heights of heaven, 
called in anguish. This is then the law, and this the wage thereof. O thou who spreadest out light as a garment. Thus the foe blasphemes thy great and awful name and scorns thy law. This is not a great translation, by the way, but you get the idea. But out of heaven's height a voice replied, Let no sound more be uttered, lest I turn the world to water, and my throne's footstool to sudden chaos. This is my decree, accepted all of you who love the law, which I created before the world was made. So God is like, of all the things that you can possibly watch in the world, God and all of the angels are like, fully transfixed by the death of these rabbis. And the angels are so kind of upset by it, they're like, how can you possibly do this? Um, and God says, you, you have to stop talking to me about this, because if you talk to me about it anymore, then I'm going to have to just destroy the world. That's how upset, that's how upset I am. Um, and in the last two lines, you also get this uh, additional mention of what is, you know, what is the destruction of the world have to do with these rabbis? That there is something in the fabric of the universe itself that these rabbis are hooked into because the fabric of the universe itself is Torah. All of you who love the law which I created before the world was made. Um, and this is a trope which shows up in Midrashim over and over again that um, the Torah um, is part of the world's creation itself. The Torah may precede the world. Um, if you turn back to the previous page, if one source which says this, um, source number 10, it is taught seven things were created before the world was created, and they are Torah, repentance, the Garden of Eden, hell, the throne of glory, the temple, and the Messiah's name. So right there, right, Torah, um, temple, Messiah's name, so three of those seven things are about Jewish history, about, like, and about Jewish practice. Um, and that last one, saying that the Messiah's name is created before the world, even suggests that the kind of the end of the world, like the entire scope of the world history, including the finale of the world, um, ending with Messiah, that's a Jewish story. That the story that's being told is a Jewish story. Um, and it was a Jewish story from day zero, from before the world was even created. Um, so this is clearly a very powerful God, but it's also a God um, which, as I said before, is, is associated with... Um, on the ground, on earth, um, quite a bit of lack of power. Um, so, to be cynical about this. One could say that this is kind of a Jewish scheme um, to assert power in a moment when there isn't power. Um, and the person who argued for this the most, it wasn't just talking about Jews. Um, there's some links between Nietzsche and Nazism. Um, he himself was probably not a Nazi, uh, or probably... It was not, like, an anti-Semite, I should say. Um, but there are things that he says in this text which uh, describe, like, the Jewish religion and also the Christian religion um, as being, in some way, intensely perverse. And so he describes it in one of his books, The Genealogy of Morals, like this. He can, says... Can you, can you summarize the third model before we go on? The third model? Yeah. There isn't any third model. It's just two. So, yeah, so, that's, yeah, the two models are one in which there are many gods and... Um, and God is the uh, is the one for the there's a Jewish God and there are gods for for other people also. And one is which there's a universal God that has a special relationship with Jews. Okay. I mean, I think the third is like your the most modern like the Jewish God is the the cognitive framework through which we experience the divine. Oh, oh, sorry. No, no, they don't. Just sections, sections. yeah. That's confusing. Mm -hmm. Um, He just says, um, will anyone look a little into, right into, the mystery of how ideals are manufactured in this world? How do people come up with ideals, like morality, things like that? Who has the courage to come? And the impotence which requites not is turned to goodness, craves baseness to meekness, submission to those whom one hates to obedience, namely obedience to one of whom they say that he ordered their submission, they call him God. The inoffensive character of the weak, the very cowardice in which he is rich, his standing at the door is forced necessity of waiting, gain here fine names, such as patience, which is also called a virtue. Not being able to avenge oneself is called not wishing to avenge oneself. Perhaps even forgiveness, for they know not what they do, we alone know what they do. They also talk of the love of their enemies and sweat thereby. They are miserable, there is no doubt about it, all these whisperers and counterfeiters in their corners, although they try to get warm by crouching close to each other, but they tell me that their misery is a favor and distinction given to them by God, just as one beats the dogs like one likes best. 
that perhaps this misery is also a preparation, is a probation, a training, that perhaps it is still more something which will one day be compensated and paid back with a tremendous interest in gold, named happiness. They call this blessedness. Further, they are now giving me to understand that not only are they better men than the mighty, the lords of the earth, whose spittle they have got to lick, not out of fear, not, out of, not at all out of fear, but because God ordains that one should honor all authority, not only are they better men, but that they also have a better time. At any rate, one will one will one day have a better time. But enough, enough. I can endure no longer. Bad air, bad air. These workshops where ideals are manufactured, verily they reek with the crassest lies. So what's the what's the argument? For what what's the what's what I what idea is he pushing for? What's the cynicism here? That you create the characteristics of your God based on your circumstances. Right. And what circumstance in particular? Uh, suffering. Yeah, and impotence. Like, really, what is good? Good is, you know, is power. Like, that should, by all rights, be what is good. But what Judaism and Christianity have done is switch everything around where meekness, where patience, where lack of, uh, lack of ability is actually the better thing. Um, and in doing so, they've created these things called morals and virtues, like these, these codes of living, which create this different way of thinking about what is good and what is bad, um, which have nothing to do with reality, which are entirely invented, and they're invented by people who have no physical ability to rule, and so they, have, they use these ideas to kind of just change the rules of the game. I mean, that doesn't really seem like the same thing as, as what we were talking about before, um, in terms of uh, from Jeremiah, in that, I mean, I think this is more like there's sort of the, the, like some Christian ideas of, of meekness actually being good. It doesn't seem like Jeremiah is saying that it's actually good. It's like, it's like you know, it's like you know, you're in the situation because like you've done something wrong. You should do something to deal with it, which actually seems like a very different thing. Right. So that's true. So this the the passages we've looked at do not describe. Um, meekness as being a virtue among the Jews. Um, what I, the reason I wanted to bring this text is because um, for Nietzsche, the reason that one creates these ideas of God and these ideas of morality and these, these rules is because of impotence. Uh, now, it happens to be that like Nietzsche in describing Christianity is saying that one then says, my own impotence is a good thing, which is not necessarily what's going on in the Jewish community. Um, the impotence might simply be like, we did do something wrong, um, but, you know, God still cares about us, it matters to God that we're in this state. God is upset, God is restricting himself to the four cubits of halacha. So that, you're right, that, that is different uh, about it. Um, but I wanted to bring this as a, as a kind of, um, as a kind of critique of the second model, uh, of model two, because it suggests that there's something kind of um, um, dishonest about it. Um, there's something in it that um, that reeks, as Nietzsche says, um, of the crass's lie. Um, I mean, the the Buddhists have a term for that. I don't even know if it's all Buddhists, but like they have like spiritual materialism, so that you kind of like you can't you can't be materialistic in like the worldly sense because you have no goods, but you kind of kind of uh, puff yourself up by thinking that you're more spiritually endowed and more spiritually superior and you, you use kind of that as like a way to compensate for the fact that you're materially impoverished and right so Nietzsche this is all excuses on the same, it's, it's, yeah. it's the same materialism like the same kind of mm. evil that's right. manifest in both situations right because ultimately you're still trying to explain yourself as being powerful yeah except now you're not doing it with force you're doing it by mm. by with ideas but um you know, you're still saying your God is, I mean, in the Jewish case, not in the Buddhist case, you're saying your God is the God, the God who created the heaven and the earth, um, that everyone else's God is meaningless. Um, so you're, you're using language, you're using ideas to replace um, actual political sovereignty. I mean, I think in the, in the definition of the term, the way I understand it, you don't actually need a God to be spiritually materialistic. Um, I think any the idea that your practice or your way of seeing or anything that kind of is in the spiritual realm rather than in the material realm that is still seen as making you better um, is, is thought to be 
what constitutes spiritual materialism. Sure. Um, and we can talk about that for other classes, about like yeah. ways of thinking about, about God in that way. For this class, like I want to just focus on these two models um, of God as being Jewish. Um, and to kind of respond to Nietzsche um, and model two, because I think like if, if we think about God as being um, a Jewish God in some sense today, it, it looks something like model two, and, and Nietzsche's critique is, uh, is quite serious. Um, it suggests that like every time that we say, um, you know, God created the heaven and the earth, we should really be thinking like, just saying that because like, you know, we are not powerful. Um, do you have a response? <laughs> Is there a way of thinking about Model 2 uh, that kind of like avoids this kind of cynical response? Because the way it's looking right now is the first model, the one with the many gods, actually sounds much nicer. Um, that model makes sense. That model, there's a correlation between how, how well people are doing on Earth um, and their god. That if you're doing well, you can say, If you're not, you can't. The second model is the one which says, the way the world appears to be right now is, uh, you know, needs to be filtered. That, like, really, like, it's backed by Torah. You wouldn't know that, but it is. Um, yeah. Uh, I guess one kind of roundabout way that you that could respond to him is by saying that these virtues, which you say come out of, like, this uh, weakness, or, like, this flawed view of God, uh, like, really are virtues. Like, those are things that, independent of God existing in the world, are valuable as, like, character-building uh, traits and, like, nation-building traits. And, it, like... We don't care. It doesn't matter if that if we arrive at those via some false notion of God. Uh, like this is still valuable. Like what what arises is still valuable. It's why is it valuable? Uh, uh, because of like some innate sense that that these morals are are like true morals. Uh, those like that, that we can intuit as human beings that those are valuable traits, as we see like in, in our interactions with others in the way that that makes us feel, uh, and that like the fact that that this conception of God allows us to arrive at that uh, means that this conception of God is valuable. Right. I think I, I agree with you. I think Nietzsche would probably say that um, you're just fooling yourself into thinking that those things are valuable. Um, if you were being honest, you would probably assert that. Um, you know, just getting your way as much as possible through your own strength is, is valuable. Um, so, I mean, Nietzsche is like, is, is difficult to argue against. Um, someone told me once that, like, reading Nietzsche is like a course in Know Your Enemy, because, like, he's good. He also writes really well, um, which makes it even better, or makes it even worse. Um, I think one thing that we can do with this um, is to kind of, think about this model too in a slightly different way. And instead of thinking about it in terms of um, disempowerment um, and about kind of response to disempowerment, um, to think about it as a way of thinking about God uh, in which our actions matter. Um, and that kind of at the core of what it means to say that there's a universal God, but God has a covenant with us. Um, that kind of paradox at the core of that is this idea that we have a kind of closeness, we have a kind of language, um, and what we do is important. Um, important in a way that other things are, are not important. And I think like, as a kind of approach to God, um, and also approach to kind of activities in life, um, that's a pretty important one to have. Um, and that's one that the texts in the Torah, which describe Model 2, and the texts later on, which describe Model 2, um, really kind of help us back up. I think where you see this the most is actually in a text which doesn't describe God at all, which is Megillah Esther, which famously does not have the word, does not have God mentioned once. Um, and in Esther, um, there's, a, there's a scene where kind of Mordecai is trying to convince Esther, you have to go before the king, you have to plead for the Jews. And Esther's like, I can't because if I'm not invited, if the king doesn't want me there, then I could die. And Mordechai says, 
Think not with think not with thyself that thou shalt escape in the king's house more than all the all the Jews. For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then with, will relief and deliverance arise to the Jews from a different place. But thou and thy father's house will perish. And who knows whether thou art not come to a royal estate for such a time as this. I really wish I had modified this text to be uh, modern. Thank you, 1917. Um, all right, so, maybe, maybe this is the whole point. Maybe this is why you're here. I think, like, if you want to think about, like, what does it mean to have a God who's Jewish in the Model 2 sense, it's right here. And God isn't even mentioned here. But it's a notion of, you should act because our lives matter, because your actions matter, because the Jewish people matter, because like not just individuals, but the continuity of this group of people is important. Um, and then if you don't do it, then you'll be held accountable for not doing so. Um, so what this kind of provides, this notion of like God as, as, as being Jewish, and God as being universal, but also caring. And I think like this is a message which actually makes sense even if you're not Jewish. Like the idea that like there's a universal God, but God cares about you in particular, is that actions matter, we matter. Um, it is important to uh, that we have accountability, and also th that there is this kind of closeness. Um, what's remarkable about this way of thinking about um, a Jewish God as being a God um, who allows us to matter um, is that. It carries on even when the God itself is seems not present at all, um, even in the wake of tragedy. Um, so you would say after the Holocaust that like if there's a, if there's a time when it looks like God is not a Jewish God, God is not a God who is interested or has any special place in his heart for Jews, it would be after the Holocaust. Um, but what you see in a lot of poetry about um, that moment is this kind of assertion that there is still a relationship with God, that God still is a Jewish God, and maybe even uh, maybe the relationship even matters more as a kind of tragic relationship. So Yehuda Amichai talks about this a little bit. Um, we just look at the last two lines of what he says. He says, "There is there is no God like ours." We used to, sorry, once we sang, now there is no God like ours. Now we sing, there is no God of ours, but we sing, we still sing. That like this relationship kind of keeps on going, even despite um, the fact that there's a loss of confidence um, in the God that's, that's behind it. Um, that what kind of the essence of the relationship doesn't even require any action on anybody's part. It just requires a feeling of things matter. Um, and part of what it means for things to matter is that you can say, you can tell God that like he's accountable too. Um, you can sing, there is no God of ours, but you still sing. Um, you also have um, Yaakov Gladstein, who was a, a Yiddish poet in the 20th century, describes this as saying, you know, the, the opposite side of, of this is to say that without Jews, what is God doing? Like, God, God is also kind of irrelevant. Um, if the world is kind of based on the fabric of, if the, if the, fabric of the world is Torah, then for Jews to be absent is, is um, quite um, alarming. Um, so we're not going to read the whole thing. If you look on page 8. Just at the very end, he says, you know, if there's no Jews anymore, who will dream you, remember you, deny you, yearn after you, who will flee you only to return over a bridge of longing? No end tonight for an extinguished people. Heaven and earth wiped out, your tent void of light, flicker of the Jews' last hour, soon, Jewish God, your eclipse. That it matters, like, even then it matters. Like, it matters, um, um, it matters that there would not be any Jews. It matters that there's tragedy. Um, that's also part of this relationship, and I think that that's a message that transfers, like even outside, like the notion of Judaism, um, the notion that like God is somebody's God. Um, there's a kind of counter to that, and maybe we'll end with this. Um, we started with the model one relationship, the notion that there are many gods, that God is just a god for the Jews, but there are other gods as well. Um, there is at least one um, sentiment that I found which suggests that maybe it's worth going back to that. Maybe there's something to the idea that, you know, our God doesn't need to be a God who created the heaven and the earth. It just needs to be our God. Like, that would be good enough, too. Um, um, you know, if you look at the end of this poem, on page 10, also by Yaakov Blasting, 
toward the middle. Shouldn't the two of us go home? This is the Jews and God. Why don't we both beat and go home? Thou hast chosen us, a tabachartanu. We were, both cri- we were both cried up from grandeur so that they could bring us to dust and scatter us and stamp us out. They tricked you out of the stars over a whole universe. How is it that great nations flock to you? You are quiet and content with your own. You are one of us completely. Why did you abandon your closet ark, your little tent, going far away to be converted into the Lord of the universe? Therefore we became your errand children, agitators of pillars, world incendiaries. You lapsed into the Jewish International before we did. We followed you into your wide world and sickened there. Save yourself. Return with your pilgrims who go up to a little land. Come back. Be our Jewish God again. Saying, you know, the way we described it before is that um, there's a kind of cause and effect. First the Jews are disenfranchised, then God becomes universal. This poem is suggesting maybe it's kind of the reverse. Like maybe it's actually the fact of having a universal God, which I guess not done good things for the Jews. Maybe it's actually like damaging to the Jews to have a God who is so universal. Um, because it's a big wide world and like we're going to get lost. Um, it would be better to have a God who's like just the God for the Jews. It's like only there for the Jews. And kind of like not mess with like the, the messy paradox of having like a universal God who also has this particular people in mind. Maybe just like better have like your pilgrims who go up to a little land. That's all you need. Um, so this is to say, although like, you know, the, the, the model one is not one that's normally told, I think like maybe there's something to that, like to thinking about God in small terms, sometimes thinking about God, like as, as just being our God, just being your God, um, which also has some kind of power.